Hello, my name is Katherine Moore, social worker, mom, coffee lover, and founder of Social Workers Rise, where we inspire social workers to connect, expand their knowledge, and change more lives than they ever thought possible. I'm so excited you found my podcast. We will talk everything social work on every level from micro to macro. We will hear the stories of social workers who are doing big things, learn new skills, and most importantly, give you actionable steps to make a difference today. Let's go. So last week, we hit a milestone with Social Workers Rise podcast, and I'm so excited. We had a thousand listens total to all of the shows combined. I'm so, so excited. Thank you so much for being here. I wanted to share one of the really great reviews that was left last week on Tuesday by Sue LCSW. She says, Valuable topics for those in the helping profession. I have been working in the social work profession for several years, and I'm always looking to expand and increase my knowledge. Social Workers Rise is a refreshing approach to learn from various social workers with expertise in their specific field. As a mom and social worker herself, the host, Catherine, discusses relevant topics that face social workers in today's day and age with her unique perspective in addition to her many guests. The topics discussed also have a multitude of applications and are not limited to just social workers only, such as parents and any other workers in various helping professions. Social Workers Rise is a must listen. Thank you so much, Sue. That really makes my heart happy. I really, really appreciate your feedback and your review. And for those of you who listen on iTunes, go on, open your app, and you will see where to rate the podcast. When you open it up, you tap to rate, give it five stars, and then write me a short little note about what you love, how it's helpful, if you have a favorite topic or a guest or something that you learned, really anything. This just helps us be more easy to find in the iTunes um, repertoire of a gazillion podcasts. So I really, really appreciate you and do that. I will read it on the air. And personally, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. Thank you, Sue. I really, really appreciate you. Before we hop into this amazing episode, I wanted to take a moment to be transparent with you and explain what Social Workers Rise is and where we're going. So Social Workers Rise is more than a podcast. My vision is to create a social worker family, a place and a community where we as social workers can feel supported, empowered, and equipped to do all of the jobs that we need to do. And it's going to be continually evolving as times evolve. So this was born out of an emotion that I had. I felt um, lonely in the field, that I didn't really have very many places to go. I didn't really have too many people to look up to as mentors. 
and to be able to ask questions. And I didn't know where to go for to find that one-on-one connection with people that I really, really needed to ask questions, to express how I felt, to voice my frustrations, and to even have that feedback like, hey, Catherine, I think you need to take a break. You really seem kind of burnt out right now. Like maybe you should just, you know, reevaluate, is this job worth it? So just to have that sounding board and that really strong community of support. So that is what I envision for Social Workers Rise. And the way that we're doing that is, one, through this podcast, and two, we're going to be offering ongoing learning and virtual training opportunities and and, and a way to com- create a community. So with that, we're having our our really first big course series coming up for you if you are a person who is striving to be a therapist, you are likely thinking about getting your your license to provide clinical therapy. You may be already uh, doing one-on-one clinical therapy, but don't really feel very confident in your skills and really want a stronger skill set. And also for new roles, new new graduates who are entering these roles who are, you have the basics, but you really just need to tie it in all together and essentially learn how to take the client through the therapeutic process. So this, this five course series is actually called Clinical Essentials for the Future Therapist. And this is going to be launching this summer. I'm very excited. And I hope that you are too, if you are considering um, just getting stronger in your clinical skills. This was made for you. And we are still developing it right now. So please feel free to reach out for me. I have a VIP list, a list for very interested professionals. And if you would like to get on that VIP list, to be the first to know when registration opens for this event, then shoot me an email, slide up in my DMs at Social Workers Rise on Instagram. Let me know that you're interested and I would be happy to add you to that VIP list. So for now, let's hop into this episode and get started. Hello. Hi, Titi. Hi, how are you? I am really great. Thank you so much. Um, I'm so excited to have you on our podcast, Social Workers Rise. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited. Yes, me too. So, um, you know, we're in interesting times right now. And we had originally talked about um, about doing a show on imposter syndrome. So but it, it'll be interesting to be able to talk about imposter syndrome in light of kind of what's going on in the in the world right now. Um, but before we jump into that, I um, I first want you to just just tell us a little bit about yourself, like like what you're doing right now, and um, and how did you get into social work, and um, and can you tell your full name because it is beautiful, but I always I always butcher it. <laughs> oh, of course. Um, sure. So 
My full name is Chinonye Donna Ebulem. I am Nigerian-American. And yeah, so I'm currently based in Raleigh, North Carolina. How did I get into social work? I love that question. So first off, I should start off by saying that I am a public health social worker. So I actually, when I was enrolled in my MSW program, I also was concurrently enrolled in an MPH program and I was conferred two degrees at the same time, a master's degree in public health and a master's degree in social work. And what ultimately led me or inspired me to pursue both of these degrees at the same time was just the complementary nature of it. So I had, after undergrad, um, I always knew that I wanted to be in a very global space and be engaged in international global health work. So I joined the Peace Corps. I worked as a community health worker. And I will say that for me, I always knew that I was going to be involved in healthcare. I mean, I had worked in nursing homes. I had worked with social workers within those spaces and I'm a people person. So in as much as I love to address, you know, the health needs, ensure that the health status of a community, you know, is, is up to par um, and, and is in great condition. I also realized that we are human beings first and there are so many social factors that ultimately play a large role in in determining whether or not we can be the best versions of ourselves. So I was in Peace Corps and one day uh, in my village, in my tiny little village, um, I, my house, I was fortunate enough that my house was on the same grounds as the healthcare center. And so I woke up to a very large, there was just so much wailing, so much noise. And so um, the maternity ward was right behind my house. I came outside and I like quickly ran over there. And I just was like, what was that noise? What is going on? So then I quickly learned that a mother had just lost her child. Aww. It was really sad. And um, she was crying. She was mourning the loss of her child. So there's that whole, the grief part. But me being the investigator that I am, I'm like, well, how did this happen? What happened? What was the cause? You know, that's when they, they told me um, that the child had malaria. Okay, the child had malaria. Did, when did they bring, when did they realize this? What was going on? They're like, oh, well, you know, um, the, because the child was a girl, for some reason, you know, unfortunately and sadly, girls aren't valued as much as boys are. So had that child been a boy, immediately, as soon as they noticed that the child, um, if it was a boy, was, was sick, they would have rushed him to the hospital. But they were like, oh, no, let's let's play it out. Let's see what happens. Um, and by the time she came to the, the clinic, it was too late. So that's when I realized, you know what? Yes, the child did die from complications of being sick with malaria, but that really wasn't the underlying cause. The underlying cause was that, you know, there's this whole, like when we look at the gender, the gender issues and um, just all of the fact that that woman wasn't empowered to bring her, her, her daughter to the hospital. And so I was at that point immediately, I was like, you know what, in as much as I really appreciate public health, social work is just as important. And so I started looking into the dual degree programs. Wow, that is powerful. Oh my gosh. That is so yeah. powerful. Thank you for sharing that story. So so what is like a master's in public health? I've I've heard of it, but I I'm not really understanding mm-hmm. like what do you do? Like what does it focus mm-hmm. on? Sure. So 
the cool thing about public health is that so when I think of social work, um, you know, with social work, we have micro and macro. So I, I remember or well, yeah, so in my program, we were able to either specialize in clinical social work or macro social work. And so I like to think of public health as macro social work. There's a lot of overlap. So it's this idea that you're looking at the rather than, you know, a doctor, for example, or a nurse, you know, might be looking or dealing with one specific client or one specific patient, whereas a public health specialist we're looking at the needs of a community. So we're looking at these these health needs from a whole at the population level. So, you know, you might work for um, a health department. So well, maybe you might notice that there, or even right now, I mean, I, so I work for the CDC. I'm working as a global health fellow. Under normal circumstances, I'm supposed to be in Uganda, um, but I was evacuated back to the U.S., which is why I'm here in North Carolina. And so now I'm working on COVID work. So what does that mean? Well, oh my gosh, there's a high incidence of just COVID outbreak. And so we're trying to track down, figure out, well, where is their spread? And where there is spread, how are communities being affected by this? So, you know, you can look at all these different factors. Whereas for me, as a public health social worker, what I'm super passionate, most passionate about are the social determinants of health that um, ultimately contribute to the well-being of a community. So um, what I'm just th- to, th- I'm pretty much presenting like a very broad overview. But if you want a specific example, I focus a lot on mental health, um, the mental health needs of a community. So. For example, in my program, I uh, when I was in my dual degree public health social work program, I had the great opportunity to work at a therapeutic nursery. I had under the supervision, the direct supervision of a senior social worker. So this social worker, she had developed this amazing play therapy tool for these infants within this therapeutic. Well, there were infants um, from the ages zero to three years of age so infants and toddlers mm. and um so the senior social worker she was a social worker so she's very clinical all of the kids that had been exposed the, the nursery was housed within a homeless shelter so the kids had all been exposed to incessant forms of violence and so they all had some sort of trauma-induced developmental delay so i helped them to evaluate the play therapy interventions that they were using to determine whether or not the interventions were effective. So just trying to figure out, you know, in addressing the needs of this overall population of homeless people who have kids um, that are just very exposed to all kinds of adverse experiences, is this intervention effective and can it be used at a larger scale? So just to provide a very concrete example. That's fascinating. So you essentially are, are like evaluating her program to make sure that it's effective and also giving Mm -hmm. it validity too, because she can come back and say, you know, this has been proven by, um, by this study or is it considered like an official study? Yes. Thank you. Thank you. A key word you spot on, you've nailed it. We wanted to make sure that uh, 
we really were testing the validity of the project and it was a study and we did have to get IRB approval through. So the cool thing was I, I was based at the university. I was a student at the University of Maryland, but the therapeutic nursery was actually a program um, that was part of the Kennedy Krieger Institute. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's affiliated with Johns Hopkins. So I did have to get IRB approval. IRB approval stands for Institutional Review Board. And it's a, a board that ensures that the research that's being done, the evaluation that's being done is indeed ethical and moral. Um, and so we, I had to get approval from Johns Hopkins as well, from, as well as from University of Maryland. And like you said, we, we were, the end goal was to make sure that it could be used as an evidence-based tool for, yes, for social work clinicians. That is fascinating. That is really yeah. cool. I really like that. Awesome. So, so you've done, okay, so you've done a lot of work with your master's in public health, like, um, and then... I know that we, that you've worked in Uganda. Have you done any other social work, um, like experiences in, in addition to that? Yes, I have. So when I was stateside prior to going global, uh, I was very much involved in a lot of community organizing work. So the beauty and the privilege of being based in Baltimore city is that, um, yeah, there's just a whole lot of grassroots activities, um, organizing, social justice activities happening on the ground. And it's interesting because, you know, this week has been rough for for uh, all of America, because in addition to uh, what's been ha- what all that has been happening with COVID. Um, yeah, I don't know about for you, but for me, it's been tough emotionally with the with the unjust um, treatment uh, that ultimately led to the death of uh, George Floyd in Minneapolis. So when I was in Baltimore City, uh, my second year in my program, that was actually the year that Freddie Gray in Baltimore City was murdered um, by, the, by the police. So there's just a lot. This is really what all is happening now. Um, this was in 2015, but what all that's happening now uh, it's t- I have so like flashbacks to what all was happening in Baltimore City, just really engaging in in criminal justice reform. Um, and then, in addition to that, you uh, not to go off on a tangent, but to answer your original question, what other kind of social work activities have I been engaged in? I worked at a local high school um, in Baltimore City in Curtis Bay, that actually was on the verge of being shut down it was the only high school which was crazy they were considering shutting it down because there wasn't enough funding it was the only high school in that particular neighborhood um and they wanted to shut it down because yes there wasn't enough funding kids were dropping out things were just not going well so there was a lot of organizing that came into play and uh a lot of politicians social workers um, you know, local community to get community members. We all came together. We were able to raise enough funding to keep this public school open. And within the public school, I'm sure everyone is familiar with United Way, um, a very large organization that focuses on providing all kinds of services. So we received funding, United Way from United Way, 
to create what we called um it was a a family it was a a, a, pro, a family stability program so it was a family it was called the family St- united way family stability initiative and so under this initiative within this high school we had a center that catered to the parents the parents of the students at that school so a lot of the parents oh gosh living in abject poverty on the verge of losing their jobs, on the verge of being evicted from their homes. And that's where I came into play. Uh, It was my my responsibility to meet with these parents, to sit down with them, to really adopt and use a strength-based approach to make sure and, and be their all you know be their biggest advocate in working to ensure that they didn't get evicted that they had access to various resources community resources and tools that they needed to carry on and to truly be self-sufficient um, while taking care of their children wow yeah that sounds like quite a job so what ended up happening did, did, did was the school saved was it shut down yeah, so it was saved, and they're still going strong. Yay. And my understanding is, yeah, my understanding is that my supervisor is still working there all these years later. And yeah, so like I said, it was in Baltimore City, as you can imagine. And the reason why I brought up Freddie Gray is because, you know, he was a young guy, and um, uh, it's interesting because a lot of the students that were at that high school, they had were dealing with, you know. A lot of them were engaged in all kinds of violence, violent activities, just like, like I said, um, you know, in unjust, harsh conditions, and they were literally just trying to make ends meet. And so it really was all about meeting, um, meeting these, these beautiful community members, where they were at, and you really adopting a strength-based approach to get to the meat of... <laughs> the issues that they were dealing with and try to turn things around. So, yes. Mm-hmm. Wow. That must've been quite an experience. And, and now, you know, this week, so, to, so as we're talking, it is May 29th. Um, and this week, yeah. So George Floyd um, was, was murdered by a police officer and in Minneapolis and you're right. It, it has been very heavy for me because twofold. So one, there's been the chronic ongoing like stress of COVID-19. Like I've been dealing with it and coping with it, but there's still like a little bit of heaviness and that just like mm-hmm. stress that's just there. Um, mm-hmm. And then you add on, on top of that, a really traumatic event. People are circulating the video and this entire um, conversation is being is is coming up again and it's like we have not made progress because this is happening however I mm-hmm. I do feel like there has been progress made I feel like the Black Lives Matters movement has made a lot of progress there is still work to be done but um, but I do see progress happening and these conversations happening and I see more people speaking out about it but at the same time i see the black community is exhausted they are so tired and and i feel like now uh you know the non-black allies such as myself we're kind of like like okay like we want to help this has been going on for so long we know it's wrong like we don't like it we hate it like 
but what like what do we do what's the right thing to say like where where do we even start so um and and then also too like like am I am I authorized to like say anything Mm -hmm. like who am I to 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 say something or who am I to feel sad or um you know just just like who would listen to me so it does really tie into to the imposter syndrome um, mm-hmm. you know, and so, so that's kind of what I wanted to talk about and to dive into today with you. Um, and you, you've done a lot of work around imposter syndrome, right? I have. So thank you so much for bringing it up. You're right. Uh, so I wear many hats and so in as much as I do also, uh, I, in as much as I am a public health social worker and I am engaged in a lot of social work and public health activities, I too am also a career strategist. And so really, it really is all about using the soft skills that we, all of us social workers have um, and working with, with people to really, truly build and gain that confidence so that they can get to, they can grow professionally personally build their personal brand and their professional brand in such a way that they can elevate themselves and rise up and just it it really is all about ensuring that upward mobility so I offer a range of services through my my personal platform um I I do a lot of resume reviews CV reviews um a lot of coaching that focuses um on well you know how can I increase my confidence how can I increase my love how can I when it's time to negotiate for um, an offer, uh, what kind of negotiation skills do I need to uh, adopt? And then also just how to manage work stress. It's not easy. Like work can be very overwhelming. And so a lot of my um, social work training actually has been in mindfulness and just helping people to be mindful rather than having a mind that is full to the point where they just become so overwhelmed with anxiety. And so like you mentioned, you were talking about imposter syndrome. And uh, just to provide a little more context, I'm sure a lot of people who are listening to this podcast already know, on Monday evening, Mr. George Floyd was killed by members of the Minneapolis Police Department. And um, it's been an incredibly long week for many of us and uh, many of you that are listening. So because, uh, um, oh, sorry, I, I wanted to interject. Because, go ahead. Um, the, yeah. This was, the police officer was kneeling on his neck to the point of mm-hmm. suffocation, and he ended up passing. Yes, go ahead. Yes, thank you so much for for um, adding that important piece. So, yes, things are very tense in, in that community right now around the city of Minneapolis and uh, St. Paul, the Twin Cities. So, um, I'm mainly just sharing this information on this platform. Thank you again, Catherine, for even allowing me to have the voice to share. Um, but just sharing because, you know, this is social work. Um, and uh, a lot of us, you might find that your clients, they might feel overwhelmed. Just so many different emotions, exhausted, um, frustrated. Uh, yes. And so... Even for me, like while I'm currently in a place where I'm just like, I'm, I'm feeling the need, to, I'm feeling the urge to be proactive. Um, 
one thing that I have chosen to do via my various platforms is to share resources. Um, and I'm happy to share those links with you, Catherine. Um, but share resources for people who are also feeling very proactive. So uh, on my Instagram, int interestingly enough, I just posted, I shared a post yesterday on Instagram, um, just basically listing seven things for really anyone who feels the need to um, support this never ending fight against racism, police brutality, and honestly, just any form of um, social injustice, because this really does cut across many different layers. Mm -hmm. So whatever, um, whatever you feel most connected to, whichever fight that you feel like joining as a social worker, um, yes, I can just briefly list it off. Yeah, so wait, wait, wait. I want to get to that at the end. Oh, <laughs> mm -hmm. So sure. I want to talk about kind of what is going on right now. So Mm -hmm. And then, and like, what do you see? So, um, so I'm not really like in the black community. Uh, well, I'm mm -hmm. so, okay. Let me back up my, mm -hmm. my position. So I am not black. However, mm -hmm. I have had just a lot of, um, personal dynamics and interactions. So my mm -hmm. husband is black. And we are very, very close with his family. And my daughter is um, half black and half white. And, well, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm white and, and Hispanic, but, you know, for this, oh. for this purposes, we'll just go with white. So, um, uh -huh. and then my father, he is, we had a strained relationship and mm -hmm. he identified with the Aryan race theory. Mm. Uh, so basically um, the the belief that white people are genetically superior to other races. He was, mm. he was a very big Hitler fan. And so obviously like that was um, a barrier for us having any sort of relationship mm. in my adult life. And, mm -hmm. um, and so he was never involved like with my family he um he did not support the marriage he mm. he never met his grandchild the first time she saw her she saw him was at his funeral unfortunately wow. yeah so it's very it's you know racism is very personal to me and mm -hmm. i have a privilege of being in the position that i see it from from different angles so there's there's me like I know how people treat me when I go out into public um, versus I when we go out into the same places with my husband and his family mm -hmm. and there are differences there's there's differences in the way that people respond in how we are treated in the customer service that we receive or don't receive and in the amount of times that we are pulled over by the police officers. Mm -hmm. You know, it, th there's, there's a significant difference. And Absolutely. so, you know, that's just a little bit about me and why I'm so passionate and why I feel strongly, you know, with the black community, because I'm, I'm part of it. And it's like, I don't know if I'm allowed, like, quote, allowed to like say that. But I mean, my daughter is half black. And, you know, you mess with my daughter, you mess with me. <laughs> 
Aww. So, yeah. um, and she's three. So, you know, I just worry about her future and, um, and I have so many, you know, family members and friends that, that I worry about too. And, and they have, they have conversations with their children that, that I never had as a white individual, like, like my husband, you know, he would tell me like, oh, you know, we have, we've learned from a young age how to respond to police officers and to be extra careful, like, as opposed to, to other people, like I see them like such blatant disrespect and like, Mm -hmm. like my husband, like, I don't know. It's just, it's just so different. So, so that just is like a little bit of context about me and my personal, personal life. (laughs) That's, That's intense. Thank you so much for sharing. That's not easy. That's hard. It's difficult. And like you said, it is very personal for you. Um, because at the end of the day, like you like you mentioned, you know, you mess with, if anyone tries to mess with your daughter, they're ultimately messing with you. And um, it's your role as a mother um, and your husband's role to ensure that your, your daughter is safe at all times. And sometimes it might feel overwhelming. Like, you know, you might not feel as empowered to do that if you're dealing with all these negative and evil forces. Um in society, whether it's structural racism or individual racism. So thank you so much for sharing. Yeah. So I'm just, I'm, I wanted to just put this out there because I am struggling with imposter syndrome right now in regards to this specific topic. And I see a lot of people, you know, in the non-Black community who are also like, you know, wondering, like, what do we do? How do we help? We don't like this. This is awful. Like, but like, who am I to say anything? So, so can you like, first, what is imposter syndrome? Sure. It's, uh, thank you so much for that question. Um, It's funny, because today I actually saw, I saw something on Instagram. And I was like, wow, this is such a great visual it was something along the lines of imposter syndrome is a temporary lapse in your memory of who you are and your true abilities so it's this idea that um you know you might find yourself maybe there's a a director role that you see um that you really want to apply for and you're like wait i i totally could qualify but then you know maybe five ten minutes later you just you really truly reflecting you're thinking about it and you're like eh, nah like I've never actually truly been a leader but then you know it's just this idea that um it's this persistent inability to believe in in your six that your success is deserved and that you've legitimately achieved um you know all that you've acquired as a result of your own efforts or skills so you know people who suffer from imposter syndrome they may be at increased risk of anxiety um and so that's what that is and you know you mentioned that you've been feeling very overwhelmed like oh like you don't know what how you can get involved or how you can engage and um there are so many ways to get engaged. So like, if you, I'm happy to share if you'd like for me to share. I don't know if you had any other questions. Yeah, I, I do actually. <laughs> I have a lot of questions. Sure. <laughs> so, um, so specifically with imposter syndrome, like who, 
who do you see is affected by it the most? And, and how does that show up for us? Like, what are some, some ways that people might be able to identify this? Mm-hmm. Sure. So who is affected by it the most? Well, it really is an issue of, um, it really is an issue of self-esteem and self-confidence. You know, I, I'm just thinking about my, it's funny because a lot of people look at me and they're like, Chi Chi, you're just always so confident. Like, how do you do it? Like, you just always come across as confident. And in as much as I may, like, on the outside, come across as confident, I cannot lie and say that, um, you know, there aren't, there haven't been moments when I felt like, oh my gosh, like, I, I probably don't qualify for this or I'm probably not good enough. And so, um, you know, based on what the, the research that I've, that I the little research that I've done and the studies that I've come across um I think that you find that a lot of well it definitely affects obviously both men women um but I will say that uh, you notice a, a large prevalence of it amongst high achieving women and why is that it's because we as women we wear many different hats many different roles we oftentimes find ourselves in this situation, you know, we might apply for a job and our male counterpart, well, there are statistics that show that our male counterparts, you know, oftentimes earn twice as much amount of money as we, as, as we may, they might be offered twice as much amount in, in the form of a salary, you know, uh, or we're just always finding our, ourselves in situations where we're undermined, undercut, despite the fact that we do have the ability to multitask we I mean studies have shown that we as women have the ability to make decisions that are in the best interest of the people that we are trying to serve we are very responsible and yes I am generalizing a lot um but you know I I just say this to say that uh I'm just thinking about social work Mm -hmm. and we and how, how this really does tie into we as social workers we know that a large proportion of social workers are women and then I'm just thinking about how when I was in social work school uh I remember the last week when I was graduating I attended a seminar um a seminar that focused on um really just giving us information of how do we transition out of this space as a grad student and enter into the workforce. And so as you can imagine, there were, we, we, across all the different students, some of us came in already having, you know, a couple of years of work experience. Some of us came in directly um, straight out of undergrad. Some of us, it doesn't matter. Like the, the reality was that most of us had concrete, by the time we graduated, we all had some form of concrete social work experience. Um, as well as the training, because we all get placed in, we all have uh, field placements. Mm -hmm. And so it's very easy to feel like, oh, well, especially when we think about the narrative of, oh, social workers were always willing to bear the brunt um, of just having to deal with being underpaid and not earning a high enough salary. And so that's where this comes into play. so yeah, I hope that I've answered your question. Like, I mean, there's just, it's, there's a lot to unpack there. Mm-hmm, definitely. How, do you feel like there is, or do you know if there is um, a cause or you mentioned that it kind of is a combination of, of a lack of confidence 
um, in yourself, do you feel like that is a really big, like, root cause of it? Absolutely. Uh, so based on the, the, the work, and I'd be happy to do even more research because you're, what you're asking is actually a very good question. And I'm curious to know if there are studies um, that have been done on this. But I know that just from, you know, reading different news sources, uh, I, I've seen that they've, you know, different researchers and um, people who have offered insight on this have determined that the women um these high achieving women who tend to experience imposter uh, syndrome, they show a lot of symptoms related to depression and generalized anxiety and low self-confidence. Mm. And so, um, you know, perhaps if you are, if growing up, you know, you were always that person who, who didn't necessarily believe in your true abilities. Um, even if you do, I mean, I'm just thinking of like all the people that I've come across and that do have low self-esteem and, it's crazy because they're far more talented in many different things than mm-hmm. I am. And so, um, yes, to answer your question, um, it, it definitely, the mental framework for imposter syndrome is developed from various factors such as gender stereotypes. A lot of that could be just maybe your upbringing. So like, you know, growing up, did you have parents? I'm Nigerian. So <laughs> for me, culturally, I mean, we have thick skin, we're tough. But I'm not going to lie. There were a lot of instances where, you know, our parents would be like, oh, my gosh, you're a goat. You're you're um, <laughs> you're a goat. You're you're silly. You're this. You're uh-huh. that. And that can take a toll. Sure. Almost. Yeah. Because then you begin um, to identify and self-identify as that. Have you seen it? I'm kind of curious. Have you seen have you seen imposter syndrome present itself in different cultures differently? Like. Americans or Nigerians or just kind of being like around the world have you noticed any any differences in the cultures absolutely so I would say that we as Americans we are just and of course this may vary from race to race and this is I I can just imagine that in making this comment many different people probably (laughs) a whole debate could um, ensue out of what I'm about to say but I was going to say that in general I'm thinking about um, you know, growing up in a Nigerian household, of course, what took place in the home very different from what took place in school. So in school, growing up, we were always challenged to be very critical thinkers. I'm just thinking of several instances where my teachers would be like, it's okay to raise your hand and say that you don't agree with what I, the teacher, am mm-hmm. saying. And as a matter of fact, I would love to hear, you know, I would love to hear people who were were willing to pay play devil's advocate we were always encouraged to challenge our teachers whereas in some of the countries that I've lived in that's not a thing how dare you open your mouth and challenge the teacher that's seen as a sign of disrespect and so you know in a way it can kind of be oppressive and suppress one's ability to truly you know express themselves or or display this high level of confidence because maybe displaying a high level of confidence in some societies may come across as being overly arrogant or not being humble so to answer your question yes absolutely I do think culture plays a huge role Mm, that makes sense because I was never like once in my life told (laughs) to challenge a teacher um and and I can definitely see how that plays a role because if you are encouraged to critically think and that it's okay to 
to um, to have your own opinion in like even with someone who is an authority figure like that that would increase your almost your self-worth right or like like yeah I do have my own opinion and that's okay um, as opposed to like the way I was raised um, here in California that like you respect authority and they know better than you do so you just need to like yeah. stay in your place mm-hmm. and do what you're told and um, and you'll be fine which that's mm-hmm. like makes for a, a easy like teaching experience right but it doesn't necessarily create critical thinkers as adults or people who are willing to, to explore people who are willing to take chances. So, so that really makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. And then, you know, I just also wanted to add as a person of color, as a black woman that, um, you know, it's interesting because in school, of course, we're always, I miss school because I miss reading many different books that share different theories. And I'm just thinking about a pro, um, a professor. Uh, I forgot which school she's affiliated with, but um, her name is Dr. Degree. I think her name is Dr. Joy Degree. And she had 12 years of both quantitative and qualitative research that ultimately led to the development of her theory of what's called post-traumatic slave syndrome now for me like I'm very privileged so my parents immigrated they immigrated from Nigeria and so I can't I I can't trace my ancestry back to um you know the days of slavery but I will say that in watching and reading some of her work she talks about this theory that talks about you know this this uh, the etiology of um the adaptive survival behaviors in African-American communities throughout the United States and the diaspora. And she talks about how it's a condition that exists as a consequence of just like consistent and multi-generational oppression of Africans and their descendants resulting from the years of slavery. And then subsequently, just like this idea that goes back to what you initially brought up this idea or this belief that African-Americans were inherently or genetically inferior to whites. And so, which, which led to institutionalized racism. And so I will say that that has been instrumental. It's been huge in, in um, ultimately leading to this decrease in, in uh, self-esteem uh, there's a lot of feelings of hopelessness and depression and just general self-destructive outlook amongst a lot of um, African-Americans and their communities. And, um, you know, it's not easy. It's not easy. You know, there's a, even me myself, like, uh, even though I can't necessarily like it might, I can't say that this is my history just as an outsider, like I'm stuck suffering from what do they call it? Like secondary um, exposure to like, um, it's like secondary PTSD. Yeah, it's vicarious like, trauma. Vicarious trauma. Thank you. I mean, yes, like I get angry mm-hmm. <laughs> when I think about it. And um, there is this marked propensity for like anger and violence. And it. I can't imagine that, you know, when you're constantly be there's just something so paralyzing about this trauma that could ultimately lead to imposter syndrome and this feeling of like not feeling worthy um, or, or strong enough to, 
go for what it, whatever your goals are um, or believe in your own ability to achieve, you know, your dreams. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And we actually did an entire episode on imposter syndrome. If you guys haven't listened to it, go back and listen to it. <laughs> oh, cool. um, yeah. So, so thank you for, for sharing all of that. And I do want to get into like what we can do because um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And I feel like the black community is tired there. Um, there is a lot of trauma. I mean, I have, I, I admit I, I could not watch the video of, you know, that yeah. came out. I, I just, I couldn't watch it. I've watched a lot of other videos and when I, even when I saw like, I can't breathe um, the quote on, wherever you know where like Instagram or whatever I was like oh my gosh is this happening again is this like an anniversary like what what is going on and it brought me back to the original time when when the other black gentleman was was suffocated and um and I just can't and and that's okay I feel guilt around not watching the video but then at the same time I know that it's what I have to do for my own mental health and my own, um, like my own boundaries to, to protect myself from, from getting more vicarious trauma. Like we don't, we don't have to watch the video to know that it happened. Um, and I, and I'm sure people like feel, feel differently about that. Like I've, I've heard some people say, you know, it's the least we could do or, or they deserve to have their story out there or, you know, whatever it is, but, I feel like whatever you feel is best for you, then you do that. We each are in a different place, you know, personally, mentally, psychologically, physically. So you have to be your own judge on what you can mentally handle at any given moment. And, and it's okay to have those boundaries. Absolutely. So, um, so with that said, I know that there are a lot of people who, who want to help. Um, because there's a lot of misconceptions out there. There's a lot of um, people who, who feel like, like us having this conversation that Black Lives Matters movement, they feel like it is inconvenient. They feel like it is annoying. They feel like this conversation should be over. They feel like the media is playing it up and blowing it way out of proportion or that we are, that Black Lives Matter movement is trying to play the victim card and like just, just playing victim and not being an advocate. So, you know, I don't agree with those. And I feel like there is a lot of education and self-awareness that people need to do on their own. But like, what can I do kind of as as a non-black ally to, to help that can be more effective, um, that can just like show my support and just move, like continue this conversation and continue with this, like moving this movement forward. Absolutely. This is a, such a powerful question for me. And I, I'm happy to share because that's what I do. I'm a resource connector. Uh, so Yes, there's a lot that can be done. You know, you first and foremost, and it seems like you've already done this and you, um, because it's very, 
you know, it's personal for you, but you can educate yourself on what is truly going on. It doesn't mean uh, that you have to go and watch, woo, very toxic videos because self-care is important and mental health is important. And we want to make sure that we are in a position where we can truly ultimately contribute to the impact and the betterment of these communities. But it really is all about celebrating fake news. Sorry, not (laughs) celebrating, separating. (laughs) Um, Separating, separating fake news from facts. Um, Yeah, separating fake news from facts, reconstructing one's beliefs and habits. I mean, go you. It's not easy. When I think about, um, you know, someone who has a background in early childhood development, a lot of people, their beliefs are constructed based off of just their upbringing and, you know, what a lot of people tend to believe, you know, what their parents believe until they get to a point where it's like, okay, like, I'm going to learn for myself. I'm going to dig deep for the truth. And sometimes it even results in having to unlearn, unlearn to relearn. And so really doing the research reconstructing your beliefs and your habits building connections with like-minded folks there are there's lots of organizing um and activism taking place even within your own community doesn't matter where you are in the world i mean look at what's happening in los angeles and other parts of the united states of america people are mobilizing themselves um and so get involved attend open meetings take action by um yeah, going to these meetings and if for some people who feel the need to protest, um, I know protest, the word protest and demonstration, it has a very negative connotation. We think violence. Protesting doesn't necessarily have to be a violent thing. Um, it's a great way. It's a great way to practice active resistance and it, you can po- protest in a peaceful manner. Um, you can protest through public speaking. Um, lead the way. Especially if you're a great, um, if you're great with public speaking, get into those spaces and share your, you know, your voice with with people. Practice your activism. Post articles. Um, use social media. Um, and then last but not least, uh, you know, if you feel like you can't become engaged in 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 those ways. You can always donate. You can donate to an impactful organization. And I share this um, on my platform. Uh, I have a list of organizations on my platform. And you can become a paid member of an organization or give a small monthly gift or send in a lump sum donation towards the social justice movement. So there are many different ways to get engaged. Thank you. Thank you for that. And I, it was kind of like, I had a reaction when you said protest that given the violent responses that have been to protests, I'm like, I don't know about me going, like taking my daughter to a protest, but I did like that you also included other ways instead of like going to an actual event where people might be concerned about their safety, um, that they can write, write letters, send it to newspapers, write blogs, do things like, like have a podcast. Um, you could do, you know, yeah. there's so many other things that, that don't get you out there. Oh, and with COVID on top of that. Um, yeah. So I, I like all those ways. Um, and you mentioned your platform. Where can people find you and connect with you and get more information? Absolutely. So for people who are more so, well, on Instagram, you can find me. Uh, my Instagram name is Afropreneur Chi. And so it's kind of like entrepreneur, but uh, Afropreneur, A-F-R-O-P-R-E-N-E-U-R. 
cheap. And um, yeah, so you can find me on Instagram at Afropreneur Chi. I do have two different websites. So if you're just more so interested in professional development, my resume writing services, and those services that I offer, you can find me on www.sproutly.online. Sproutly is spelled S-P-R-O-U-T-L-Y www.sproutly.online and if you're more so interested in the work that I'm doing um, you know the social activism social justice work that I'm doing I, I also failed to mention that I do have a funding database there are lots of people who are go-getters they're proactive they're innovators and for people who want to embrace their creativity or um, you know uh, activate their leadership skills um, in a proactive way feel free to go to my website it's www.afropreneurchi.com um, and there is a funding database and uh, on that funding database I do share various funding opportunities that are updated on a regular basis for people who are looking for the funding or the grants that they need to, to carry out whatever projects they want to work on. Wow, that's awesome. I'm going to go check that out. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And I'm going to have all of these links in the show notes. So don't worry if you're like driving or something and you can't write this down. Um, all of that will be on there. And thank you. Thank you so much. Is there anything that that you wanted to add that we didn't cover? I, no, if anything, I just wanted to... Uh maybe close it out. I mean, we as social workers, we are, it's so easy to get burnt, um, to suffer from burnout. Um, so many emotions to deal with. So I just want to close out with an affirmation that I like to tell myself in an effort to avoid imposter syndrome. And I encourage you all who are listening and who are tuned in um, to say it to yourself in front of the mirror on a regular basis. The affirmation is, I believe in myself, take risks, and follow through on my ideas as I'm striving to be the best person, uh, to be the best version of myself. I love that. Love it. Thank you so much, Chichi. It was so good to talk to you today. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, yeah, all the best. Awesome. Thank you so much. You take care. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Social Workers Rise. If you loved it, write a review and give us five stars wherever you listen to your podcast. This just helps other people just like you find us and join our community. Also, I would love to connect with you on Instagram. You can find me at Social Workers Rise. I can't wait to see you next week. Bye.